Thank you all for being here. We've got some things to talk about with Paul's unique mindset. Now, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with the term culture shock. Culture shock is where you go to a different culture and it's kind of alarming. I experienced culture shock when I moved from Rochester, New York at the, the middle of seventh grade to Lubbock, Texas. There was quite a culture shock. I had grown up in Rochester for years with people who had guys who had hair down to here and I moved to Lubbock where guys were dipping snuff and I didn't even know what skull was. Um, they wore cowboy boots in Lubbock and I didn't know what a cowboy boot was because where I had grown up they wore sandals. Guys didn't wear sandals in love. It was culture shock. And, and, and culture shock doesn't just happen like that. It can happen all sorts of ways. As a lawyer, I was in San Francisco as a young lawyer. I went to Chinatown and I went to a Chinese restaurant. I thought, what a great place. I like Chinese food. What a great place to eat Chinese food. Chinatown, San Francisco. I went in, they had one of them little carts that they were pushing around and they'd pick up the thing and they'd show you and you could point at what you wanted to eat. And I thought this is going to be so cool. I'll be able to figure out which is the sweet and sour chicken and which is the sweet and sour pork. And so sure enough, they brought the tray over to me, they lifted it up and there were these chicken legs. <laughs> right there. Now, I have no doubt it's a delicacy if you cook it right. But it was quite shocking to me. It wasn't until years later that I went to, to China that I got to see the, the people on the side of the street in their little vendor carts just grilling up scorpions for anybody who'd want to eat them. That same culture shock would exist if we were to go back to Philippi at the time of Paul and in some ways culture shock is more readily apparent in food uh, when we lived in New York they didn't have Tex-Mex food um, I know it's stunning <clears throat> I was in Mexico uh, recently and I was talking to a fella about Tex-Mex food and he said you know here in Mexico we don't really have it he said, Tex-Mex, and I said, I know this is what I've heard. Tex-Mex food is food that people in Texas think is from Mexico, and people in Mexico think is from Texas. And it's just kind of a blend. And so food is something that is very uh, good at showing us just the difference in culture and the difference in age. Now, Oliver just came in. Hello, Oliver. Oliver, I have a question for you. I grabbed in preparation for this lesson to talk about culture shock for a moment. I grabbed a cookbook or a book about food for antiquity. And so I was reading about what people in Philippi might have eaten as part of their diet. You go to the corner uh, uh, agora, and you get you some food. What are you going to get? Well, you might want to eat some squirrel. 
if they'd had a good shipment come in from across the Mediterranean, they found camel to be rather tasty. How about fox? Anybody? Donkey? Anybody want to eat some donkey? I understand especially young donkey was especially tender. They put this fish sauce made from the parts of the fish that we throw overboard for bait. They made this fish sauce that they put on just about everything. Of course they ate dog, but I could not, because one of my daughters is here, put up a picture of our dog and <laughs> suggest anything of the like. But we have an entirely different world back then than we have today in so many different ways. The world is vastly different. Um, uh, uh, we've come along in technology, but we've also developed differently in terms of our vocabulary, our economic system, uh, and so many other ways. And they've had a result. And so uh, uh, you look back and when you're reading a book like Philippians, it's very helpful if you try to set aside some of our mindset and try to get into Paul's mindset and the mindset of his readers. And so if we put on glasses to read through them with Paul's lenses, we will see today in just the very first verse of Philippians, stuff that normally you and I just read right over. Because we don't stop and contemplate why Paul is saying something of great worth that in that culture and in that time may read differently some than it does to us today. And so that's what I'd like to do with you. And we'll look at three different attitudes of Paul that are expressed within the first verse. First, I want to look at Paul's attitude toward God. And as we look at his attitude toward God, let's see how it aligns with ours but let's also try to be inspired by it and see if we can't draw something from it that might change our attitude toward God. And second, I want us to look at Paul's attitude toward the church. And this is something where if we understand what he's saying, we can receive it as part of his attitude toward us. And to the extent that Paul is an inspired writer and God has secured this scripture for the church in its canon, in its Bible, we can rest assured that those insights do apply to us. And so I hope we'll get some strength as well as insight and inspiration. And then the third thing we're going to look at is a relationship angle for Paul that's pretty specific but I think it will really help us all right got your roadmap then here we go first Paul's attitude toward God now here's the passage that we're looking at today it's Philippians 1 1 
And I've kind of set it off a little bit here in the PowerPoint, even though it's all one verse in our English Bible. The reason I've set it off is because this is the typical way you would write a letter back in the days of Greece. Back in the days of, of Greece is the right word. Back during the Roman times when Paul was writing. Um, he begins by identifying himself. He did not probably have any kind of embossed stationery that had his name already on it. So he starts out because these letters are typically going to be read to a lot of people. He starts out, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now the letter itself is probably just Paul's letter. Because Paul is using the first person, I thank God in my every remembrance of you, not we thank God. But Timothy was someone, as we talked last week, important to that church. He was part of the founding of that church with Paul. And, and uh, uh, some scholars believe that Timothy may have been taking Paul's letter down. He may have been the, 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 doing the secretarial work on it. And so... Uh, it's Paul and Timothy to that regard. But Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, or elders, and deacons. And that's the way Paul begins. Now, to talk about Paul's attitude toward God is to key in on this word that I'm highlighting right now. The word is doulos in the Greek, um, here it reads douloi because it is um, a, a plural, okay, nominative plural, but it, it, the, the root word is doulos, and doulos in the Greek world, in the Greek world meant a slave, specifically someone born as a slave as opposed to someone made a slave in their life. That had a different Greek word. But but, but you and I need to realize when we read something like this that Paul's writing in Greek to a Greek slash Macedonian slash Roman area and that Paul himself knows his Greek in part through his Old Testament Hebrew studies. Because Paul almost always quotes, when he's quoting the Old Testament, out of the Greek translation of that Hebrew scriptures. So when we read Paul's vocabulary, and, in, and with Galatians, I read it a little bit differently than I do with Philippians. But Philippians, Paul's writing, if you recall last week, to a community that's not so steeped in Judaism. They didn't have enough Jews, it seems, to form a synagogue. But that doesn't mean that they weren't somewhat familiar with the usage of these terms. And to the extent perhaps Luke stayed behind, which we have an indication from the Acts narrative he might have, there's certainly people who, who will understand the Hebrew sense of these words and not simply the Greek. But with Paul's usage, we need to understand both. So while doulos in the Greek world means a slave, it's also used in the Hebrew Old Testament to translate a Hebrew word, eved, which means 
it's, it's a slave, it's a worker, uh, it, it's got those connotations, but when used of God as, a, as an Eved Adonai, a, a servant of God, it's used in the sense of a special calling that's expressed in obedience, that's expressed in doing work. So if we understand that in Paul's vocabulary, this word in a Jewish religious sense includes the idea of not just service or working, but it's working with a special calling that God has on your life when it's used in reference to God. And so with that, I'd like to show you some of the Old Testament passages that speak about those do losses, those servants or slaves of God. Most normal translations today don't translate that Hebrew word as slave very often. They will during the Exodus because the slavery meant more, the, the Eved to Pharaoh meant something different than it did in reference to God. But consider who the, the doulosses are, doulos, it depends on how you say your Greek, it's a short O, sue me, I'm sorry I say doulos, some say doulos and they think that I'm just a nut, I'm, I'm a nut. Um, so doulos or doulos of the Lord, Eved Adonai, consider the doulos of the Lord in the Old Testament, okay? Abraham. Now God calls Abraham out of Ur. God sends Abraham ultimately to Canaan. And Abraham is, uh, names change from Abram to Abraham, but Abraham has a specific calling from God. And Abraham is termed a servant, a slave, a doulos of the Lord in the Greek translation of that Hebrew. Now it's not just Abraham, but his son Isaac, through whom the promise also came, is termed a doulos of the Lord, doulos of the Lord. He's also a servant of the Lord, someone with a special calling. Through him the Messiah will come. Not just Isaac, but Jacob himself, the father of the nations or the tribes. Jacob himself, same thing. He's got that special calling from God. Not just Jacob, but Moses over and over and over and over again is called a doulos, a servant, uh, an Eved Adonai, uh, uh, someone who is specifically called by the Lord. Not just during the life of Moses. After Moses is dead and gone, when people reference back to Moses, they'll reference him back as servant of the Lord. Doulos, slave of the Lord. Someone very specifically called and commissioned. Now it doesn't stop with Moses. Joshua who comes next and Joshua who invades the promised land who takes the mantle of leadership from Moses is also called to do that for God. He's working for God in a specific calling. So he is an Eved Adonai. He is a doulos of the Lord. Doesn't stop with Joshua. King David who will not only be a progenitor of the Messiah, but who will establish a kingdom 
who is a man after God's own heart, who will do many things towards uh, uh, setting things in place for his son and the ultimate worship in the temple. David himself, who helps rescue the people from the Philistines, who, as we'll hear in our sermon from Pastor Jarrett next hour, slays Goliath. Goliath, by the way, not quite sure what his name means, but the best analysis seems to mean Goliath means conspicuous. Like, well, he's obvious. <laughs> um, side note, sorry. Um, and, and so within the framework of this, David is someone who has a special calling that he's expressed, seeing, in his service or slaveship or obedience to the Lord. It doesn't end with that. In the Old Testament, you'll find King Solomon, who built the temple, or had the temple built. Let's be a little more profound. I'm not sure he had any calluses on his hands from construction. But Solomon, who oversees and pays for the building of the temple. Solomon, the, the wise. Solomon had a special calling on his life that was expressed in his obedience to God. It doesn't end there. You can put up Elijah. You can put up Elisha. You can put up all of the Old Testament prophets. You can put up Isaiah. They're all called Eved Adonai. They're all doulases. They're all slaves of the Lord. Obadiah, his very name. Obed is Eved. It's just a different vocalization. His name means slave of Yahweh, slave of the Lord. Obadiah. And, and, and so this whole concept is steeped deep within the Old Testament. That a slave, a doulos of the Lord is someone who's got a special calling on their life that they're expressing through obedience and service to God. So now when we look at this, Paul is starting out with a very important concept. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He's not simply saying uh, Jesus needs a refill on his tea. I think I'll get him some tea. Dr. Bob's back. Welcome, Dr. Bob. Sitting there with his wonderful wife, Kelly. Dr. Bob is fond of telling me the story about how he was sitting down to watch the Super Bowl, I think it may have been. And he said, Kelly, can you get me a glass of iced tea before it starts? And she brings him a glass of iced tea. And he drinks it. And he starts rattling the ice cubes and says, hey, Kel, can you refill this before it starts? She graciously gets up and refills it. He drinks it down, starts rattling his ice cubes again. Hey, Kel, can I get some more before it starts? Third time, Kelly gets him some iced tea. He drinks it. Hey, Kel. She says, I'll get it yourself. He said, well, it started. Bob tells the story, but I know Kelly well enough to where Bob would have been bringing Kelly the iced tea by the second glass. No, uh, wonderful couple. It's so glad to have you all back. And that's Bob's, uh, one of his 
staple of jokes. He's got more if you want to talk to him afterwards. Um, that's not the idea behind service. When Paul says he's a servant of Christ, he's not simply saying, Jesus told me to go to Macedonia, so I did. He's saying something much more significant. Paul is seeing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And in Paul, steeped in these Old Testament images and, and, and language and knowledge, Paul is thrilled to express his devotion and to see his special calling. A calling of service in relation to the majestic King of Kings. I, Paul, this, this is not a burden, it's not a hassle, and it's not just a byword. It's a very special, proud title that he wears as a servant of Christ Jesus. The Messiah who was once Jesus is now again Lord. That's not to say he wasn't Lord Jesus when he was on earth, but in a very special way that Paul will unfold in Philippians 2, the second chapter of this letter. Christ humbled himself, emptied himself when he took the form of a human and was made in the likeness of, of us. And then he humbled himself even further to the point of death on a cross. But God highly exalted him. And the one who emptied himself, who was in the form of God, but didn't count it as something he had to keep, the one who emptied himself, then is restored with something new on his resume. A name, a CV, that is above every name. And that is of the rescuing, redeeming, saving Messiah. And so it thrills Paul, who will say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul revels thrilled over the idea that he is a servant of the Lord. I love that. I love the way Paul's delighting to think of Jesus in his royal dignity. I mean, sometimes I need to think of Jesus as my friend because he was a friend. Greater love has no man than for a friend to die. He chums around with people. And I need that sometimes. Sometimes I need to think of Jesus as the tender-hearted one who loves the unlovable, who fellowships the unfellowshipable, who touches the untouchable leper when he heals him. Sometimes I need that part of Jesus. But I need to never lose the joy and the delight of realizing that my Jesus, my friend my lord is the king of kings the lord of lords to whom be all glory power and dominion forever and ever amen and i need to never ever forget to take delight in that i love the way paul does realize 
This is not the way Paul started our Galatian letter. He started Galatians where his teaching was being challenged as Paul, an apostle, apostolos. That's someone who's sent. That's a messenger. That's someone with authority from the sender. It's a different start. It's a different way behind the letter. It's the different tone of the letter. So with that idea of Paul's attitude toward God, let's move to the second. What's his attitude toward the church? Well, let's go back to the verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, pasentois hagios, ois, to all the saints. Now I love this, and your key word here, the hagi words, so this is the Greek A, alpha, and they didn't have an H really. But they would put a sign above a vowel when a vowel started a word. And that sign, if it looks like a comma backwards, like an open mouth, like this is an open mouth, that's a sign you'd say ah, at the start and make an H sound. If it's this way, it's closed. So you wouldn't. You'd just pronounce it as the A. But because it's open, it's hagios, H-A, not just A. Does that make some sense? So that's the word. And, and the hagi part, the ois again, is just, that's a, a, a tag, a label that the word wears so you know how many people and what part of the sentence it's talking about and things like that. But these hagi words in the Greek world refer to something devoted to the gods. Something holy, something sacred. And, and, and that's a great understanding of that Greek strain of words from the hagi. You've got the, the verbs, you've got the nouns, you've got adjectives, you've got all sorts of words built off of hagi that use this. Now, Paul also, though, steeped in his Old Testament, uses these words with an Old Testament understanding as well. And in the Hebrew world, while it includes this idea of sacred and holy, there's a real emphasis on it being also a set-apartness. Not common. Not profane. Not ordinary. But in a world of its own, in a class by itself, distinct. In fact, the antonym, the opposite of the Hebrew word, which is built off of three consonants, and it's Kodesh, Kadesh, it's any number of different forms out of those consonants. I guess kadosh would add the vobs, but I mean it's the three consonants are the key. So this word, hagios, in the Hebrew world has this emphasis on set-apartness. And I'd like to show you some examples of that in the Old Testament so you've got it to look at. Time. Time is holy in Genesis when it's talking about the Sabbath day. 
the Sabbath is called a holy day because it's set apart from all the others. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, I think I've got it there, Genesis 2, 3, God blessed the seventh day. Now, just before this in 2, 2, it says that, that God ceased his work because everything was done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it set apart, dedicated to him, holy, sacred, but with an emphasis on set apart from everything else, set apart from the other six days. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. So time, the Sabbath, is set apart, dedicated to God, consecrated, holy. And we read that there. It's not just time, it can be dirt. When Moses is on Mount Sinai and God appears in a bush that's burning but not being consumed. And Moses is there and Moses gets over near the bush. What does God tell him? God says, don't come near. Get your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. It's ground that's set apart and different from all the other ground because right now the presence of the Lord is being revealed there. And when the presence of, Lord is be, of, of the Lord is being revealed, even the dirt itself becomes special. Set apart, unlike any other dirt. You can wear those sandals everywhere you want, but don't wear those sandals right here. This is special dirt. It's holy, it's sacred, it's set apart for God. The word is also used in reference to offerings over and over and over. The food that you might eat is ordinary. But the food that you give as an offering to God is set apart for Him. It's holy, it's consecrated to Him, it's dedicated to Him, it's sacred to Him. And so, so you can have ordinary food. And then there were offerings and that would include the sacrifices, but the grain offerings and others as well. So it's not just those. We can continue in the Old Testament and read about the priests being set apart for service to God. The priests were not in the same class as everybody else. They were specifically carved out and set apart because they were the ones that were responsible for serving in the tabernacle and then the temple. That was their responsibility. That's what they were distinct from everybody else because of. It's not just the priest. If you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll see the nation of Israel itself is called holy. The nation of Israel itself is a hagios nation. The nation of Israel itself is not like every other nation that was there. God specifically set them apart, made his presence known to them, revealed his character through his law to them, gave them a special blessing that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's not because God cared less about others. In fact, the whole reason he made Israel holy is to express his love to the whole world. Though Israel got a little short-sighted in that and 
lost their vision of God. And actually, the sad part is, as a nation, over and over we read, Israel's desire was to become like all the others. Boy, that's a lesson to me. Because to the extent, we'll get into it later, that Paul is saying that we are saints, we are holy, we are hagios, we are set apart. How often do we want to live just like everybody else? How often do we want to talk just like everybody else? How often do we want our priorities to be the priorities of others? How often do we want our morality to be the morality of others? And yet, that's not the calling. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You're a people wholly set apart distinctly sacred to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now you see how this verse gives us insight into the meaning of the word holy. Set apart. Out of all of the people he chose you and segregated you. Pulled you out in a unique way. So you've got the nation of Israel, not just the nation of Israel. God himself is deemed holy. It is of God, Exodus 15, 11 is speaking. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. God is of God is the paradigm, the apex, the pinnacle of being set apart. God is set apart like none other. Who is like God? Nobody, nothing. There is no one like our God. Nobody. It's not just in Exodus 15. The idea of God in the Isaiah vision of Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. He's not like you and me. And above him stood the seraphim and one calls out to another and says separate, set apart, distinct, holy, morally, every way possible, uniquely Pure, majestic, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this is the set-apartness of God. And so as you look at this, whoops, God is then called in Isaiah alone 25 times the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One. He's, Israel may be set apart as a nation, but He's the Holy One of Israel. He's set apart from everybody. And He's set apart in His righteousness. The scriptures say over and over again. There is none like God. Set apart. Distinct. Holy. It's not only God. The temple. The temple is holy. And then the inner room is called the Holy of Holies. 
Because the temple itself is not an ordinary building. It's set apart. It's set apart for the worship of God. But inside the temple, inside the innermost room, is the room that is set apart in the building that is set apart. And in that holy of holies, only the high priest gets to go in only once a year. Only for the purposes of atonement. And that unique place merits this Hebrew-Greek idea of set-apart, holy, consecrated, dedicated to God. Now, the followers of God, not simply the nation of Israel, but specifically those with a heart for God, are also called holy or saints are set apart and you'll find that for example in the Psalms over and over the one I pulled out as an example is Psalm 34 9 oh fear the Lord you his saints holy ones so I want us to understand these words I want us to get this because Paul sees the entire church here as those who are set apart and devoted or consecrated to God. Different than the mundane. Now this is, is gotten a little bit confused because historically in theology, especially associated with the Roman Catholic faith, the theology is taught that there are special people who have lived such an incredible life and had such a blessing from God that they are saints as opposed to um, the rest of us more normal folks who will be spending some time in purgatory to fix some of these things we've been doing wrong that theology is not what Paul's got in mind when Paul's using this language the theology can be discussed and debated in different places I'm not entering into that dialogue I'm merely saying we need to be careful that we don't look at this. And, and I know some of y'all come from a Roman Catholic background. I don't want you to read the word saints here and think of saints in terms of uh, uh, the Roman Catholic theology of saints. Because that is, those are still people who merit this idea of being set apart by God and sacred and holy and devoted to God. But it carries with it baggage that keeps them baggage isn't the right word that's a negative word it carries with it ideas that keeps us from considering ourselves included in Paul's term the way Paul's using this word it includes all of the believers and the devoted to God Paul sees the entire church I thank my God uh, or no he says he says to all the saints and the, the way that is structured it's it's that all of the church is participating in God's divine majesty God is set apart God is separate and all of the church that is separate participates in that and we are not to be what everybody else is the church is is something some we are people in glaring contrast to the sensuality the impurity and the profaneness of the rest of the world so Philippi if 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 we um, 
we're doing pretty good time-wise, so it gives me a chance to do something here. So this is like Greece, kind of like that. You come up, you've got the Italy boot. It's a Prada boot, if you were wondering. You've got uh, Turkey is like here, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm messing up over there. But if this is Greece, here's Philippi. Now, you've got with this these mountains over here. And these mountains, and this is the reason Philippi was, was made into the guardian, that, the, the guardian city it was by Philip. These mountains have gold and silver in them. And the gold and silver mines are being ex exploited. Rome has put a road through here. And that's a main thoroughfare. It's called the Via or Via, I guess if we want to pronounce it like the Latins would have, the Via Ignatius. Uh, Via just means road, um, and I think it's actually Ignatius, though my, as Scott Callahan will tell you, my spelling is deplorable in foreign languages. If it makes you feel any better, Scott, it's also deplorable in English. Um, but I think I got gold and silver right. Um, this is a main road. So this has been built... Philippi has been built into a fortress. It's, it's a Roman garrison that's stationed there. It's got Roman law applying. But it's a major thoroughfare. There's a lot of economics going on there. You've got the gold and silver mines that are being protected by the forces that are there. But this is not just a little backwater town. It's on the main thoroughfare. It's on the interstate of, of, of Rome going through that area, connecting uh, harbor to port. No, harbor to port. Connecting, never mind. Major thoroughfare, leave it there. And so this is a place that knows sensuality. This is a place that knows impurity. And Paul is saying that the church stands out. Christ said, you're the light on the side of a hill. That you're the salt that gives flavoring and seasoning and and, 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 and we're not ordinary. And that's what Paul says. If you want to see a commentary on this, the best one is actually by Jesus himself in John chapter 17. This is called the high priestly prayer. But if you look at John chapter 17, verses 11, 14, and then 15 through 23 especially. John chapter 17 Let's start with verse 11. And this is Jesus praying to God right before his crucifixion. So Jesus is about to be crucified. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they, his people, are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now within the flow of that, look at verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. We are holy and set apart. We're distinct. We're unique. Just as Christ was. And he continues to say, I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not 
of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify means it's the same word. It's a hagios word. It's just translated sanctify. Dedicate, sanctify, set apart. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, again, I myself am set apart. That they may also be set apart, holy, in truth. And then he plugs, Jesus plugs in his prayer, you and me. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is scripture. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so the world may believe you've sent me. See, our separateness is not any different than Israel's in that we are to be a, a, a light to the world. We're to show them that there's something other than the dog-eat-dog of ordinariness. Other than the live for the moment and live for the pleasure and live for yourself of ordinariness. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's purpose behind this. God doesn't set us apart for our benefit solely, though it is, it does change us, transforms us, gives us a much greater life, a much greater joy, a much greater peace. But God does it so the world will see. So this is Paul's attitude toward the church. That we are the holy ones, we are the saints, we are the set-apart, dedicated to God people. And we should live like it. And then last but not least, toward relationship. Go back to the passage. To all the saints, so Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. We're not simply set apart. We're set apart. We're dedicated in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for in is in. It's easy to remember. They just spelled it with an E instead of an I. That V is the Greek nu. That's the letter N. So you'd look at that and say it's ev. No, that's in. In, in Christo your dative form, Yesu, of, in the Christ Jesus. So to all of the saints in Christ Jesus. This is a really special term for Paul. It's a bit of a mystic term. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? We're saints in Christ Jesus. This is, we're saints in in relationship to Jesus and we read about Jesus saying I'm in them and they're in me just as I'm in you father but what that means is 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 a bit difficult to explain beyond 
unfolding Paul's usage of it. And so that's what let's do. John, remember what he said, I won't leave you as orphans. This is a little earlier. We were reading from John 17. This is the, the colloquy Jesus had with his disciples right before he went and offered that prayer. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you'll see me. Because you, I live, you'll live, and in that day you'll know I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. We are in Christ, Christ is in us as believers. And when you embraced Jesus in faith, I'm confident if you embraced him in faith, you sensed a difference. You sense the presence of God in your life. And so as we look at the way Paul uses this phrase over and over in this Philippian letter, he'll talk about residing in Christ. He does it in that first verse. He does it again at the end in 421. At the, right at the end of the letter, he comes back to it. And this is his ending. Greet every saint... Everyone set apart in Christ Jesus. That's where they reside. That's where we live. Look, we dwell in Christ Jesus. We pray in Christ Jesus. And his name, his authority, not ours. But, but, but that's where we live. That's why Paul says to the Galatians, I uh, know, to the Corinthians, he says, why on earth are you messing around with sexual immorality? I mean, you're in Christ. Do you really want to join up with a harlot? Christ is in you and you're in him. Is that where you want to take Jesus? Is that where you want to live your life in Jesus? Paul will also say in this letter that we glory in Christ. It's in Christ Jesus that we find our glory. It's in Christ Jesus that, that we find our, our thrill. It's in Christ Jesus that we find our joy and our happiness. Philippians 1.26, he'll say it. So that in me, you may have ample cause in what Paul was going through. To glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You can be excited. You can be, be thrilled. Uh, uh, again, Philippians 3.3, 3, look at what he says. He's just giving them a warning. They're on a major thoroughfare. And you never know when someone from Galatia might be coming through. <laughs> look out for the dogs. Um, those who mutilate the flesh. We're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are thrilled. You want to know why I am part of the redeemed of God? You want to know why I am confident of, of, of where I live today but where I'll live forever? It's because in the Galatian language, I've been crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what I've got. I glory in Christ. I rejoice in Christ. And I seek the mind of Christ. I want not just to renew my mind, but I want to renew my mind with the mind of Christ. Paul says, have this same mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Or it could be translated, that was yours in Christ Jesus. But it's the mind in Christ Jesus. This is, this is renewing our thoughts. Changing who we are. Think about all the junk that you've got in your life that you don't wish, you don't wish for anybody. You don't want it. Bring it to Jesus. I dwell in Jesus. God, let's clean this junk up. That's your job. Help me. I'm, I'm all in. Just tell me what to do. And let him clean you. Let him transform you. Because that's what we've got a chance to do. See, Paul will say, our upward call from God is in Christ Jesus. So when God calls us to something more than we are, that's being done in Christ. It's that same resurrection power of Christ. I'm out of time almost. I've got, that clock's fast. I've got a minute and a half. God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Again, it's in Christ Jesus. That's, look, you say, oh, I don't have any peace. Well, get in Christ. You must be living outside of where you need to be right now. Get your heart and get your mind right with Christ. When your heart and your mind are in Him, God's guarding it. You say, well, I'm going to step out here and see what the weather's like. Get back under the umbrella. It's raining. But God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. So when Paul writes this to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, he's talking to us. And I love this because these words denote the most intimate living union that can be conceived between the believer and the risen Lord. So I'm called to be a servant. Amen. Saint. Amen. In Christ Jesus. Amen. This is Paul's mystic understanding. I'm going to give up my life to Christ. And I'm going to receive his life. And that's tremendous. So here are your points to ponder. Ponder Jesus as Lord. Jesus said in John... You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. But if I then, you're Lord and teacher. Jesus says, you got the order wrong. You got me as teacher and Lord. Flip the order. I'm Lord first. That's why you pay attention to the teaching. I want to be a servant of the Lord. I want to be commissioned by Him. I want to be called by Him. I want to be sent by Him. I want to be on task, working as to the Lord. Servant of the Lord what an humble yet incredible title that we should all aspire to. We want to be holy saints, consecrated to God. 
Paul said it this way in Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, set apart, different, consecrated and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. And then last, I want to live in Christ. Paul said in Romans, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Same in Christu Jesu. Christo Jesu. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Very important phrase for Paul. All right, it's time for church. Let me bless you. Father, I pray your blessings on all of the saints in Christ Jesus. May we seek to serve you with joy and excitement in our hearts. Each step, each moment, each day. In Jesus, we glory and we pray. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.